Thank you for downloading this message from Roots Community Church. We pray that you are encouraged by the word. If you're looking for more information, please visit us at rccphoenix.com. This week, I want to talk about how the Bible was assembled. Who put all of these, uh, how many, let's see, how many of y'all remember, how many of y'all were listening? How many books are in the Bible? 66, there you go, very good. Um, Somebody goes, yeah, (laughs) when somebody answered, that was awesome. Uh, I would do the same thing. I need to do that back in my school days. What he said, uh, 66 books are in the Bible, and these aren't books, all of them. Some of them are, are historical books. Some of them are prophetic writings. Some of them are like, um, like, like songs and poems. Some of them are letters. There's a collection of these writings that are in, and there's 66 different, what we would call books today, in the Bible. Who decided that those 66 were going to be in the Bible? Like, what was that process like? And if, you, if you're a conspiracy person, you might think, well, there was a dark room. And four bad actors got together and went into this room. And they went in on a Wednesday. And on Tuesday, there was no Bible. But when they came out on Wednesday, there was a Bible. And they went, but ah, the word of God, here it is. You guys start living by this. Not even close to being close to being close of what really happened for the assembling of the Bible. Now, the, the, the title up here, number one in your notes, is how was the Bible put together? Who made the final decisions? This, the, the way this phrase is worded is how it's typically asked. But we'll figure out here in just a minute that that's not even the right way to ask the question. But how was the Bible assembled, okay? <clears throat> so, first line of your notes. The Bible was not voted on by a democratic process. Why is this important to know? Because we live in a culture where all we have known is voting for things. No one voted on the Bible. People didn't vote and say they went around to all the cities and y'all cast your votes and they tallied them all up and said, well, if you got above 100 votes and you're in, and if you got below, you're out. None of that process happened. Okay, so let's take our westernized mind and set that aside. No voting. Okay, next line of your notes. The early church believed the contents of the Bible were not decided upon by Christians, but were discovered by Christians. The early church believed the contents of the Bible were not decided upon by Christians, but were discovered by Christians. They did not hold the view that people just got together and decided this one's in, this one's out. That's not what they did. They felt that the Holy Spirit, that God through his Holy Spirit was showing them through the validity of what they were reading, what exactly was scripture. Now, I'm going to pause right here for a second and give you some instruction. Every person that got a clipboard and notes today has a three by five card in there with their um, with their clipboard. We're going to we're going to tonight. I'm going to shorten the message just a little bit. And I'm going to um, ask you, you don't have to participate, but if you want to, you can. These cards are for questions. If you have a question about something that we talked about in the previous couple of messages related to this series, or um, of something tonight, or something you'd like further ex- you know, explanation on, 
um, we will, we're going to gather those up at the end, and you, can, you don't have to sign them, put your name on them or anything. We'll just anonymously kind of read through a couple of the questions. Ryan will direct that for us so we can answer any questions that you might have about what we talk about tonight or what we talked about before. Cool? So you guys can just have that in your back pocket and just, you know, just be ready to fill that out. So let's keep going. <clears throat> so this is important to note. Next line in your notes. The writings of the Bible were completed by approximately, approximately 90 A.D. If you're a recent graduate, that would be C.E. Common Era, Anno Domini for us old folks, A.D. Next line. In 115 A.D., Christian authors began recording a list of New Testament writings Christians were treating as Scripture in 115 A.D. Okay, so Jesus dies about 33, 30 to 33 A.D. All of the New Testament writings are, are captured in between then and 90. The oldest copy we have is actually 70 A.D. for the book of John. And these people who were getting letters from Peter, letters from Paul, they, they were starting to read the accounts of Matthew and Mark and Luke and all the writings of John. They, they started to um, travel between their cities that got a letter and start to exchange and make copies of the letter that was written. So, for instance, if you were in Rome and Paul wrote a church, uh, a book, an epistle, a letter to the church in Rome, the book of Romans, and I was from Ephesus, the book of Ephesians, I would write down a copy of the book of Ephesians, and I would go to Rome, and I'd be like, hey, did Paul write you guys a letter? Yeah, he did. It's right here. Can I have that for the night and make a copy of it, or however long it takes to handwrite the entire book of Romans? Can I write that down so I can take it back to the church in Ephesus with me so we can also read it and continue to develop our understanding of how to serve God? Sure thing. These things got passed around like that and copied like that all the time. And the churches in Corinth and Thessalonica and all different places that were scattered all over the world, they would connect with each other and they would allow each other to copy the writings so that they could take a copy with them and spread the word. So, the book of Romans did not just stay in Rome. The book of Romans was hand-copied and passed out to other people. So all these other people are reading the book of Romans. All these other people are reading the book of Ephesians. There's more people than just the people who were written to that are reading these things because they're handwriting copies and taking it around. Everybody with me? This happened so much over the decades that Christian authors began to recognize, man, every church that we visit, every church that we hear about, they're reading the same thing. They're reading the same letters. They're reading the same accounts from Matthew and Mark and Luke. They're reading the same accounts from James and, and John. They're reading the same accounts from Peter and Paul. They're sharing all this information with each other so they're all on the same page. And so they thought, we need to write these down. So they began to write down the names of the letters and the names of the books that were being passed around by all the churches. So at 115, that started to happen. 
handwriting, as you can imagine, was the only form of communication other than really speaking. There's no text, there's no email, there's no YouTube, there's no MySpace for all you old folks, right? There's no Facebook, there's none of that. Um, these guys have to handwrite letters. So the early church fathers would write letters to each other and send them with a person to go deliver to somebody in another city in another church. This is another piece of astounding evidence for the Bible. We can reassemble the entire New Testament just on those letters. The early church fathers were steeped in Scripture. The early church fathers soaked their minds, their souls, they soaked their spirits in God's Word. They steeped it. Anybody know what steeping is? Anybody? God's word. Put them this in themselves all the time. Necessity for them. Passed around. Another person got the letter from Peter. Oh, here's the writings from Peter. He got passed around. File. They just go straight. Like God's word. If the word of God is in you, it's going to come out of you. Because whatever is in you comes out of you. Whatever you put in comes out. Your mouth, your attitude, your actions and beliefs. What goes in you comes out of you. If the word of God never comes out of you, probably not in there. If it very rarely comes out of you, it's probably very rarely going into you. What we put in will come out. If we justify all kinds of actions and immoral activities, it's because at some point in time, we're putting those in us. Why? Because what goes in us comes out of us. These early church fathers were so concerned that the Bible was in them that when they wrote and had conversations with the other churches, they were so steeped 
in God's word, it came out of them. It came out of them so frequently that the entire New Testament can be reassembled without any of those 30,000 copies that we have just on the letters because they put it in there so much it couldn't help but come out. Now, let's fast forward a little bit here to the early 300s, the early 4th century. The Roman emperor, his name was Constantine. You may have heard his name before. Scholars and theologians believe, some, about half of them believe he got saved. They converted to Christianity. About half of them believe he kind of just became friendly with the Christians but didn't really convert. Depends on who you read will, you know, reveal whatever argument they believe. Up until that time of Constantine ruling over Rome, up until that time, it was illegal. It would cost you your life, could cost you your life, could cost you your freedom, could cost you your possessions to openly declare that you were serving God that you were rejecting all of the Greek mythology, all the Zeus, all the Thor, all, the, all, all of those. When you rejected those, they took that personally as personally against the emperors and the government because they believed that the gods created the emperors to lead Rome. So when you said, I reject all of that, you were telling the guy who was at the top, you are not special. They didn't like that. They'd come after you. They put many people to death. There's stories of children, Christian children, young adults, old people, put into the Colosseum and allowed animals to rip them apart as entertainment because of what they believed in God. Constantine came through and put an end to that. It's no longer illegal. It's not going to replace... This Christianity faith is not going to replace all these other gods. We're just going to not persecute them anymore. So there's, a little, there's some historical evidence to say that Constantine, Constantine started going to church. So if you believe that the gods created the ruler and the emperor, if you believe that he was created and that guy starts to go to Christian church, all the people that want to be connected, where are they going? Christian church. On one hand, you got a group of people who are saying, this is awesome. People who don't know the gospel are following the, the king, the emperor into church, and they're hearing the gospel. There's another group of people who started yelling and saying, well, you're diluting the church with a bunch of people who are just there because it's a cultural thing to do. Sounds like America. It's a cultural thing because I want to be close to the emperor. I want to do what he does because if he was created and put there by the gods and he's a Christian, we all need to follow his lead. And so these other group of people were saying, we're not, we're not even coming to your churches anymore. We're going to go out here in the desert and live by ourselves. Try to pursue God on our own. The divisions that we see today are not unique to America. They're a human problem. So Constantine, he does the Christian church a, a favor, and he stops the persecution. He stops the persecution of the Christians. <clears throat> and so it flourished for a while. The church flourished. People started to 
come through that were may have been afraid before, but now it's okay. And so they're hearing the gospel, they're participating in church, they're getting saved. But as with anything, as it starts to grow, there starts to be a little bit of arguing, a little bit of problems, a little bit of frustrations, people unhappy with what's going on. And so they start having these quarrels about different things. And so Constantine starts to hear these things, and he, and he sends word to more than 300 church leaders. It's time to get together. We got to get together and kind of end some of these discussions and these debates that are going on and on. There's no end to them. Let's get together and let's, let, let's talk about what's in the scriptures and in the letters from Peter and from Paul and all these historical writings that we have. Let's look at these things and let's settle these differences. So next, next portion of your notes. Constantine, emperor of Rome, called 300 plus Christian leaders together in the early 4th century A.D., to settle some disagreements within the church, including the nature of Jesus Christ, the proper date to celebrate Easter, and other matters. These leaders met in a city called Nicaea, located in modern-day Turkey. Let's keep going on your notes. This gathering of Christian leaders is referred to as the Council of Nicaea. How many of you have ever heard about the Council of Nicaea? Ever heard that referred to before? Ever heard of it before? Okay. So all this is, is more than 300 church leaders get together from all of their cities, and they go there and they discuss these questions that they feel like need to be resolved. And while they're there, they start having a discussion about the Scripture. Which books do you look at in Scripture? Which books are your church looking at in Scripture? Do you read all of the letters of Paul? Do you read all the letters of Peter? What about from this guy and this guy? And they start having these discussions, and they actually, while they're there, come up with the books of the Bible that are in your Bible today. <clears throat> As they're in their discussions, they begin to realize, wait a minute, I've read all of Paul's letters. You've read all of Paul's letters? I've read all of Peter's letters. You've read all of Peter's letters? You read the, the, the historical accounts of Matthew and Mark? You, I've read those. You've read those too? And they begin to realize that they're all drawing their theology, their belief of God, their study of God. They're all drawing this from the same group of books, the same letters. This wasn't absolutely clear until this time and so as they began to go through these things they put the books of the bible the writings the the letters all of it through four tests <clears throat> they didn't call them four tests i'm calling them four tests or basically four questions like criteria four four criteria that i'm referring to as four tests before a book of the bible a letter from paul a letter from peter anything was allowed into the book um, not allowed, but recognized as this is scripture. Test number one, it's in your notes. <clears throat> they ask this question about every book that's in our Bible. Is the writing connected to Jesus or does Jesus affirm the author? If you're wondering what affirm means, it just means sign off on. Did he sign off on the author? 
Was this person a disciple of Jesus? Peter, Matthew, James, John, yes. Then we should probably consider strongly to keeping these. Test number two. Does the writing make sense with itself and other books of Scripture? Does the writing make sense with itself and other books of Scripture? Meaning, does it contradict itself? Did this one say, you know, that in chapter 3, he say, you know, I, Jesus was born in Judea, and over here it says he was born in Morocco. They didn't know what Morocco was, but I mean, like, you understand what I'm saying. Was there contradictions? Test number three. Is it historically accurate? Is it historically accurate? <clears throat> Does it line up with what we already know about history, or is it off somewhere? Test number four. Have Christians regarded this writing as scripture, and has it been circulated, next line, circulated, and confirmed to be real by the Christians? So test number one, is, there, is the writing connected to Jesus or does Jesus affirm the author? Test number two, does the writing make sense with itself and other books of scripture? Test number three, is it historically accurate? Test number four, have Christians regarded this writing as scripture? Has it been circulated and, conform, and, and confirmed to be real by other, other Christians? These are the tests. These are the tests that they put every book of the Bible through. They ask these questions about every single one because if it didn't meet this criteria, they couldn't keep it and say, well, it's not really divinely inspired. The Holy Spirit didn't inspire this one because it's wrong. So how many books are in the Bible? Okay. After they asked all of those questions about these books that were in the Bible that today, they concluded, next on your notes, 54 books of the Bible were included or confirmed with no one objecting or raising any concerns. So where's my math people out? 66 minus 54 is 12 high school kids, because it's all, right, all of them. All of them, they got it, high school kids. <clears throat> 12. So there's five books in the Old Testament and seven books in the New Testament. Here's their questions about these books. The books in the Old Testament that needed further discussion. Ezekiel. When they read it, they thought this was hard to understand. The imagery was kind of crazy. Like, it, was it something that should be in there? But after much discussion and prayerful dialogue and theological analysis, they kept it. The Song of Solomon. Why the Song of Solomon? Because it's very sensual in nature. There's a husband and wife that are having some sexy time conversations back and forth. Married folks, visit Song of Solomon on your own time. Ecclesiastes, seemed dark in nature. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Should we put this in there? And they read through the whole thing and realized, well, oh, wait a minute, it all resolves back to God, so yes, we need to keep it. Esther. And so next line in your notes. I didn't know this. this is why I put a blank in your notes. The reason that they had a discussion about it, it's the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God. A little, little Bible trivia there for you. It's the only book of the Bible that doesn't mention God. If it didn't mention God, should we put it in his book? 
should be considered inspired from him. The last one of the Old Testament, Proverbs. Proverbs is a collection of truisms, and some could appear to conflict with each other at first glance, but after you get into reading them in their context, you realize they don't contradict each other. New Testament books, the book of James. Faith without works is dead. So they ask the question, is salvation, is he trying to say salvation is works-based? They realized he wasn't, that faith will, what he was saying is that faith will, or that works will spring up out of you if you have genuine faith. Hebrews, they didn't know who the author was. We still don't today. There's some question about that. Second Peter, was it actually written by Peter? They concluded that it was, so they kept it. Second John and third John, there wasn't anything wrong with them, but they were kind of like personal letters, so should we keep that in the Bible? Jude, the author quotes from a book of Enoch, which is not included in the Bible. In Revelation, the imagery is hard to understand. Everybody who's, written, who's read the book of Revelation would agree that the imagery is hard to understand, even to this day, right? <clears throat> they went through a laborious, tedious process of having conversations about every single writing that's in the Bible. Because they wanted to be sure that what they were reading and what they were consuming was, in fact, the inspired Word of God. There were books that were not included. I'm not going to get into a lot of these, but we, you can ask about them later if you've ever heard of them. A couple of them, the, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Peter. That's a weird one. The Gospel of Peter was found in the 19th century in a guy with a, in, a, in a tomb who was holding it, like clutching it to his chest. And when they read it, it has a talking cross that comes down out of the sky and announces things. Probably shouldn't put that one in there. It didn't make it. Why? No way that happened. So a lot of process went into making and gathering the Bible. Incalculable amounts of time, discussion, thought, and study happened to assemble and preserve Scripture. <clears throat> including today and all throughout history, people have really tried really hard to bring arguments that would try to discredit God's word. The arguments that you hear today, whether it's on a YouTube video or somebody at your job or whatever, the arguments that you hear today are not new. The arguments that would try to disprove scripture today are not new. Every one of the questions has been answered. Why would you continue, even though these questions have been answered, to try and push the idea that the words here are tainted, that this is not real, that what it writes about is not accurate, that this has been jacked up all throughout history, that this is unreliable? Why would you continue to do that? Why would you continue to mock things that are written in God's word today if all of the questions have been answered and there is only one reason that you want to do that is because you don't want it to be true. 
if this is true, I got some explaining to do, Ricky Ricardo. You don't know who that is? You never had a black and white TV, I can tell you that. <clears throat> Google it. If this is right and this is true, if I can not look at some excuse and try to make up that the Bible doesn't say what it says, then I have to look at my sinful life, my thoughts, my beliefs, and I have to contrast it with what's here, not the other people in the world that I think I'm better than. <clears throat> but I got to look at what's written here, and if this is the truth, I've got to submit to it, and I don't want to submit to it, so I got to find a way to justify to me and to anybody else that this is not God's word. And my friend... There is so much evidence to the contrary that it is. I don't know if you knew this, but they tried to make historical arguments against the Bible. And scholars would make fun of the Bible, literally make fun of the Bible and Bible scholars, because 22 times in the Old Testament, the Bible referred to a group of people called the Hittites. There's no evidence of anyone called the Hittites and they would mock it there's no nation there's never even a guy named Hit that had kids little Hittites dad joke specialist none of that it just came to me see it's just because I'm a dad it's a gift <clears throat> the Hittites they would mock them until the early 1900s when a cave was discovered and not one not two, not three, not five, not ten, but 10,000 clay inscriptions were found detailing the entire history of the Hittites. See, that's something that I would do. That's why it's good that I'm not God. God would be like, oh, it doesn't, real, it doesn't exist? Here's 10,000 pieces of information that confirm that every time you mocked somebody, you were the idiot. Here it is. All of this information, all of this proof, all of this historical, textual, ancient evidence that proves that what you have in your hand is God's word. In the 80s and 90s, there was... One of the most well-circulated magazines, if you're under 30, a magazine is like a printed piece of paper they stapled together and put on shelves at the grocery store that you read. There's words on them. Um, one of the greatest, <laughs> thank you, um, one of the greatest or one of the most w widespread magazines was Time Magazine in the 90s. Everybody read Time and it was, they considered it wildly credible and in December 18th, 1995, a very bitter pill was swallowed because Time Magazine wrote, reputable scholars now believe that the New Testament account is reliable history. Is reliable history. <clears throat> Matt, why in the world are we going through all this stuff about the Bible? 
Why are we talking about the validity, how much evidence there is for it, that it stacks up the, you know, as high as the skyscraper in Dubai? Why, is the, why, is, why in the world are you taking time to tell us about all the scribes and go through these painful details that some of you might not even care about? It's because the scrutiny that has been put onto God's word is unlike any other book in history, and it's the only one that passes all of the tests. The only one. I'm not trying to arm you so that you can win an argument. There's a greater purpose. I was trying to figure out the right way to say it until I stumbled across something in a class I was taking this week that really um, startled me, broke my heart. There's a group that does uh, church-wide statistics. They're called the Barner Research Group, and they work with a college, Arizona Christian University, here in the Valley. And on May 10th, my son's birthday, on May, 10, by, on May 10th of this year, they released um, some data that they found. And this one wasn't just about the folks that come to church. It's about the people who teach at the church, the pastors. They surveyed more than a thousand pastors, all different types, lead pastors, associate pastors, assistant pastors, children's pastors, youth pastors, executive pastors, teaching pastors, all of them. These are all in the survey and then more, to the, more than a thousand people were asked these 54 questions about the biblical worldview that are really plain And 37% of the pastors had a worldview that was consistent with this. Barely a third. Almost two-thirds of all of the pastors that are preaching today in this country, if this statistic is correct, do not line up completely with this. It gets worse. I'm going to quote from them now. A minority of Christian pastors think and act biblically in relation to the categories of the worldview measurement. The lowest of all is a category that might have been expected to be on the top of the list, but it's not. It's at the bottom. Beliefs and behaviors related to the Bible. The pastors. I read an article where someone asked a question about fallen pastors. And I was trying to think about it and how I'd respond and then I saw this, and the answer is very clear. Because what we're steeped in is the wrong thing. Church fathers, his word.
what we remain steeped in today is the idea that the guy who stands here needs to be famous. That the person who teaches needs all eyes on them because they figured out the right way to live. But instead of consuming this, we consume the stuff that the culture brings. And if you only consume what the culture brings, and you only steep yourself in what the culture talks about, What comes out of you is going to be the culture. You got church fathers who bled, died, believers who were ripped apart by lions in coliseums for entertainment, who risked their life to write the words of Scripture and to consume them over and over again so much. They valued it so much that those few hundred people, we can recreate the entire New Testament. But today, how many likes on my last post? How many views did the last sermon get online? How many comments? How many analytics? I got 19 people on staff here, and I really want to give them a raise, so maybe I should teach something out of tradition and not scripture so I can maybe just lean on you a little bit to give more in the offering. Maybe I start to believe the fact that every single person who has ever been put up on a massive national global platform as a, the person of God who is, they're, they, they're the ones that got it going on. They're the ones that need to be at the conference. They're the ones that need to be speaking everywhere. They're the ones that need to be doing all, the, all of the leading and now in speaking for the Christian church that every single time somebody gets to the top of that pinnacle, something happens and they're destroyed from it and embarrass the church. Matt, you talk about a lot about the Bible here. Uh, yes. And after reading that, it will not stop. That same Barner Research Group said, the majority of a person's worldview is shaped before the age of 13. And it goes through a period of small refinement but in their teens and early 20s. The number one, the number one important uh, pastor title in the church is children's and youth. And on the survey, they each came in at a big whopping 12% biblical worldview. No wonder... Things are running out of control. No wonder we hear about tolerance outside of the church and inside of the church, regardless what this says. No wonder we hear people say, yeah, but that was for then, not for now. No wonder people are searching for ways to try and disprove this book, trying to disprove the word of God, because they've been taught or not taught. <clears throat> the absolute 
undeniable legitimacy of Scripture. Matt, I heard that. Fill in the blank. No problem. Every one of those questions has always been answered. I might not have the answer for it. You may ask a question tonight, and I might not be able to answer. But I'm telling you, it doesn't matter if there's only three people left at the end of the day at Roots Community Church. We are going to be committed to steeping our life in Scripture. And at every single point, if I can encourage you and challenge you to reject steeping your life in the culture, I'm doing it at every turn. If you drop your kids off at youth, we're doing it to them too. Kids in children's church, we're doing it to them too. Parents, you should be doing this. How do I do this with my kids, Matt? Steep your life in scripture so that when you come to crazy scenarios, guess what comes out of you? What you've been steeped in. Keep yourself in the culture and guess what's going to come out? The culture. I believe God for many reasons, changed my life, radically changed my life, and I was a church kid. I also believe him because every piece of evidence points to him being the truth. Religion is a crutch, Matt. You got to turn your mind up. Mm-mm. Not with the millions and tens and hundreds of millions of hours and discussions that have been poured over this so that it can sit on our coffee table covered in dust? No. Matt, you've been really direct tonight. Absolutely. Because after I read that, Oh, it's on. And if it's going to be on for us as a church, I got to stand here and commit that it's got to be on for me. I would love to sit here and unfold physical evidence and walk you down the dozens of hours I've spent reading and listening and, 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 and discussing and, and going back and forth and asking questions of all this stuff. I'd love to sit down there in front of you, but if you need to do that after the things that you've heard over the last three weeks, it might be because you just don't want it to be true. And if you don't, okay. But understand you're making a conscious decision to say, I'm going to look away from the evidence. I'm going to look away from history. I'm going to look away from archaeology. I'm going to look away from everything that we have that has verified God's word is in our hands and live like I want to. And God has given you that choice. My prayer is, my prayer is that by the time my life is over and whoever takes over this church later on down in life when I can't do it no more 
my prayer is that number would be the other way. My hope is it would be 100%, but we're not going to get there because it's just people. What do you steep in your life in? You tell me how to read the Bible all the time? Nope. I don't want to be one of those guys that's so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. No such thing. Because the words of this book tell you how to live your life in a way that will transform your world. I don't want to just go through the cliches. Me neither. That's why we scrap all of that and go back to his word. Everything rises and falls on Jesus, the gospel, and his word. And my prayer is that you will choose to be steeped in that. We might go one more week in this series, and next week I'll tell you not just how these people discovered what books were supposed to be in the Bible, but the price that was paid for you to physically be able to have a Bible in your hands. The story is unbelievable. It's unbelievable. This is one of the only times you'll have a series from me that doesn't quote a whole bunch of scripture. Today was more of a history lesson. Archaeological findings, scholarly revelations. Because I want you, every time you pick this up and we refer to it here, that you know that what's being presented to you, as long as we are following this, is the truth. And don't come here and tell you anything you can't find out on your own. Do the research. Find it out. Start with the notes we give you every week. But this is his word. No doubt.